Well, good morning, men. It is a, uh, a joy to be with you guys this morning. And I uh, just want to start by again, at, I don't think if I said it every day the rest of my life, it would do justice. But thank you. Thank you for your care for me. Thank you for your care for our family. Thank you for the, the prayers and the encouragement and um, just feeling and bearing the, the sorrows that we have felt this last couple weeks. Uh, with my family. It's just so precious to be a part of the body of Christ and to feel and experience the things that God intends for his people through his people. And you all have just been exemplary in your care for us and a tremendous means of God's grace to us. So thank you. Shepherding your heart is not a gimmick. It's not a church trendy catchphrase. It is a necessity for the believer. And I can attest to this reality with more vigor than ever before that God's word is absolutely crucial. And it's more valuable than all the riches of the world. Any security that this world has to offer, any treasure, any possession, it can be stripped away at any moment. I've felt that these last two weeks, but God's word, it never fails. When everything seems to be being swept out from under your feet, when your circumstances in a moment give way to the opportunity to question everything in your life, Christ is a rock. He is. He is a firm foundation for you. But what is there left to a heart that doesn't know Christ, that doesn't know God, that doesn't know what he has revealed to us about himself, that doesn't have truth engraved upon their heart so that when the storms and the breakers of life and the hardship and the sin and the effects of sin, when they wash away all of the debris in your life, what will be left? Only truth. God's word is absolutely irreplaceable for the day of trouble, for the season of distress. But what I want you men to know this morning is that it is good for so much more than that. The word of God needs to be for us our daily bread. That we would feast heartily on the riches of truth that we would yield to God as his word day by day by day shapes us and conforms us and molds us into the image of our savior that his word each day would be our sustenance and our fuel for worship John 17:17 17, 17 says sanctify them in truth your word is truth and God's intention for his people is that they would be made more holy and that God's spirit would bring this about in his people working through his word there's nothing that should bring you to worship God to a greater degree than a right understanding of scripture as there is no more sure place to know God than through his word And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. How do you bring a worshipful heart before God in his word that you might understand rightly what God has revealed and know God from his word and worship him in light of him? And this is a discipline. It is 
It is a labor, but it is a sweet labor to come before God humbly, to come before him, submitting yourself to him in his word. We must know God. We must know his truth. God will use that to prepare us for the day of trouble, but he uses it for so much more, for daily worship and fellowship with the creator of the universe. What else would we want? What else could there be? What other priorities might we have than to come before God and know him and worship him for who he is? But we have to get it right. By God's spirit, we can. And his spirit works through our own discipline and aids us where we need it. Have have you ever had a circumstance where you just kind of got rocked in a moment as you realized that a a verse that maybe you'd hung on to for a long time, maybe it was even your life verse, you loved this verse, everything about it was wonderful, and then you're sitting with a group of guys and they start talking about your precious life verse only to demonstrate that you didn't have a right interpretation of that verse? You butchered it? You're like, well, this is my life verse. Now what do I do with my life? I thought I knew the plans the Lord had for me. Prosperous ones. I thought I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I guess I can't make this free throw still. There was a time... uh, I was young. I was a decade into my Christian life, but I was still young. The Lord saved me young, and I was sitting with a friend of mine. I was spending the night at his house. If that tells you how young I still was, I think I was maybe six. I think I was 17. (laughs) Excuse me. And we were talking about uh, free will and predestination and God's sovereignty and salvation. And we just, we went, we went back and forth, back and forth. And he was persuading me, seeking to persuade me to believe that God was sovereign over salvation and i was arguing with him i'm not a puppet no but but and then he'd point me to ephesians 1 and i'd go yeah but god desires all people to be saved and then he'd back out and show me the context and then i'd say but i'm not a puppet i had these really well thought out arguments of logic to defend my position and after about i think it was something like six hours into this sweet debate where he was just so patient i'm staring at my bible and I could argue with God's word no more. And, oh, God God is sovereign over salvation. And then I looked up at my buddy and I said, what else do I believe that's not true? It was like my whole world was just just rocked. And it became for me a a challenge to search God's word and and re-understand what was true from God's word. And, um, And that was just helpful. It was helpful because... What I learned in that moment was that I could not bring my own wisdom and impress it on God's word. Rather, I needed to come to God's word in humility and dependence, wanting to wholly submit my life under him in his word. Now, listen, maybe you feel ill-equipped to be able to learn and grow in this area. And I just want to encourage you guys. uh, The spirit of God is greater. And so some people have a propensity to study and language 
and reading and all these things where they just enjoy it and it comes more naturally. And some people it's more difficult. It's more difficult. I remember years ago, I was listening to one of John Piper's uh, biography messages on Luther. And he goes into a, a Piper rant on how men need to learn the languages and how crucially important it is for men to learn the languages. And I remember hearing that message prior to seminary thinking, uh, he's absolutely right. This is crucially important. We need other men to learn the languages <laughs> because language was not my strong suit. Um, grammar, vocabulary, those things, you know, your weaknesses. I know mine. Those are my weaknesses. And it was interesting about, uh, eight months into seminary, I was doing yard work, um, to help supplement my income. And I was riding on a riding lawnmower, just randomly listening to messages. And that message came on and I had read my Hebrew Bible that morning and Piper starts going on his rant. And all of a sudden it just hit me and I'm riding the riding lawnmower, you know, mowing the lawn. And I just break down in (laughs) tears and I'm just sobbing because that was never supposed to be me. I, that was just not supposed to be me and by God's grace and lots of labors of my own and especially of those teaching me, um, I, I was able to, to acquire those skills and not that every person needs to do that, but the point is is that if somebody like me can have a growing understanding of how to handle God's word, there's hope for you regardless of your propensity. No one's off the hook. We need to know God. We need to come before him in his word. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at seven principles for shepherding your heart to honor the Lord in your Bible reading. Hopefully these will be aids for you to equip you to be able to shepherd your heart well in your understanding of God's word. As we look at this morning, discipline five, the hermeneutic, we don't only just want to understand language. We don't only want to have Uh, process for how to come before God's word, but we want this to penetrate our hearts that we would come before him humbly and worshipfully. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at seven principles for shepherding your heart to honor the Lord in your Bible reading. The first one is this, pursue God's glory. This is where we want to start. This is the base point. As we come before God, as we shepherd our heart to honor the Lord in our Bible reading, our number one aim and our goal when we open up our Bibles is that we want God to be glorified. Everything in the Christian life is to ultimately be about the glory of God. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So reading your Bible is first about God's glory. That's why we come. It can't be first and foremost about you getting something out of it. I'm going to come to God's word because I just really need something out of it for my day. You will get something out of it, but we must cultivate a pursuit for God's glory first and foremost. We don't read our Bible to be good Christians. We don't read our Bible so that we find a golden nugget to stay with us for the day. We read our Bibles worshipfully, wanting to glorify God by drawing near to our great God in his word. Open up your Bible to Philippians 1. Philippians chapter 1. 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And I want you just to look for a moment with me at verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. But we must cultivate a desire to grow in our knowledge and our discernment so that we can approve or discover or distinguish what is excellent so that we grow in holiness, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. Now, why? Why? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 11. To the glory and praise of God. That is the ultimate end of the Christian, and that must be the ultimate end of our Bible reading. And this changes reading your Bible from where your feelings are the dictator of the fruitfulness of your time in God's word, right? Sometimes we're tempted to do that. We read our Bible and kind of how we feel afterwards in the moment is how we measure if it was successful or fruitful. And that's not what we're called to do at all. Our feelings are not the dictator of the fruitfulness in our time of God's word. Did I worship? Did I worship? Did I, did I humbly submit myself to him? Reading your Bible is first about God's glory. We must pursue God's glory in our Bible reading. Now, what do we do when we don't feel like wanting to glorify God in our Bible reading, right? So if the, if the goal isn't to kind of conjure up some sort of emotion or feeling as a result, but rather to be conformed to Christ's likeness through humble submission and worship to God. And, 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 and what we should seek is to glorify God first. What do we do when we sit down to read our Bibles and we don't feel like glorifying God? Well, we pray. We pray. And in faithful discipline, we fight what we feel in that moment with what we know, and we bring our hearts to God's word so that we would grow in a real knowledge in all discernment. So that we can distinguish what is excellent, which is the glory of God. One of the most foolish or counterproductive things we could do is to wait to read our Bible until our heart is in the right place. And sometimes that's a temptation. I have a reading plan. I don't want to be legalistic. And so I'm going to get my heart in the right place before I do my daily reading. That's counterproductive. God's greatest means to helping get our heart where it needs to be is going to be to diligently do what we must despite how we feel in that moment. Part of seeking to honor God in our Bible reading is humbly submitting ourselves to God, thinking less of ourselves and concerning ourselves more with God. And so we bring our hearts to God's word when we feel like it and we bring our heart to God's word when we don't. That's why it's a discipline. So the first directive in shepherding your heart to honor God in your Bible reading is pursue God's glory. Next, number two, depend on God, that's your blank, 
Depend on God as your greatest aid. That's number two for us this morning. Depend on God as your greatest aid. The greatest aid in my Bible reading is God himself. And so we pray and we ask God for help in your Bible reading to understand his meaning. What was God's purpose for writing? What did he intend to reveal about himself? And listen, you, if you're a believer... If you're a believer, you can have confidence today to be able to read your Bible, to be able to grow closer to God through him, to be able to honor God in your Bible reading, to please him, to grow in your faith, to rest in his word. There's going to be several practices that we're going to talk about as we move through things this morning. And you don't have to perfect those things to be able to benefit immensely from God's word today. Prior to salvation, you could... Read God's word, but the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. First Corinthians 2.14 says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That's first Corinthians 2.14. But now, now if you are a believer, you have eyes to see things about God, to come before him in his word and to have true understanding, to welcome the truth into your life, to discern what is true from scripture and to know what God has revealed. You no longer are seeking to suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness, but now God uses his truth as a means of sanctification for you. And so how important is it then to come before the Lord in prayer, to seek his help, to see what you must about him in his word, humbly and worshipfully, that you would see and accept what he has to say about the nature of sin and the danger that lies within, that you would gird yourself with the reality of the saving nature of God who provided a way of salvation and freedom from sin's bondage and the penalty through his own son and that you would be able to observe God's heart for righteousness and the holiness of his people that you would fill your heart and mind with love for God and love for those things that God loves prayer come before the Lord humbly dependently worshipfully and seek him to help you Number three, as we consider our aim being that to glorify God, as we recognize that God is our greatest aid, number three, we must employ self-control in our reading practices, knowing that the strength to do so comes from God, that he will enable us to be able to put these various practices we're going to discuss into place. And yet at the same time, we have an obligation before the Lord to be self-controlled in our reading practices, to be disciplined in our practices. Now, while God is your greatest aid, we must also exhibit self-control. Scripture is God breathed, the spirit inspired the Bible, yet he does not short circuit the scripture by whispering in our ears what they mean. When we pray for his help, we do not pray that he will spare us the hard work of rigorous reading and study and meditation. What we pray is that he would make us diligent to work hard and humble enough to welcome the truth into our life. 
The work of the Spirit in helping us grasp the meaning of Scripture is not to make study unnecessary, but rather to make us unconditionally open to receive and submit to what our study reveals. Instead of twisting the text to justify our unwillingness to accept it. And this takes work and self-control. You see, when you depend upon God as your greatest aid in understanding Scripture, that doesn't get you off the hook from the hard work and discipline of handling rightly God's Word. But you're inviting Him to aid you in cultivating humility and discipline and submission to yield to it, to yield to Him as His truth is unfolded before you. So this takes work and self-control. And I put this self-control of our Bible reading into three categories to consider this morning. First is letter A, hold fast to the normal, normal use of words and languages. That should be your, your blank, normal. Are we all together there? Number three, letter A. Perfect. Hold fast to the normal use of words and languages or language. Expect a single clear meaning. This is how language works. Communication is a gift from God. He is the the originator, the author, the creator of language. He certainly knows how to communicate effectively to us. And so communication being a gift from God, as God clearly communicates one meaning at a time, sentence by sentence, phrase by phrase. We communicate in order to be understood in these ways, and so it is with God. God's communication in Scripture is clear. He is a perfect and effective communicator to his people. Isaiah 45, 18 and 19 Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19 says, I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. The Lord expected the offspring of Jacob to understand him because his meaning in his words were not secret or unfindable. God communicated to be understood. This doesn't mean God has spoken regarding everything secret. Things still belong to God that are unknown, Deuteronomy 29, 29. But what he has spoken, he has done so to be understood. This also doesn't mean everything is easy to understand or doesn't quite require work or effort. Peter tells his readers that Paul's words were difficult to understand at times. That's in 2 Peter three fifteen and 16. But we do expect to discover one coherent message from one passage to another, and this takes patience and self-control. As we hold fast to the normal use of words, the language we let words mean I'm sorry, as we hold fast to the normal use of words and language, we let words mean what they actually mean. We don't spiritualize things. Uh, Scott Maxwell has said it this way. If a husband comes home from work and finds a note on the counter letting him know the hallway light is out, he doesn't conclude from that that spiritual darkness is welling up in the house. (laughs) He reads the note normally, puts a new bulb in the hallway, and goes about it. Or if you're me, you read the note and a few weeks later get a bulb. (laughs) Trying to do better at that. 
were to read our Bibles this way, that this practice is known as the literal grammatical historical method of interpretation. You're taking into account the actual literal meaning of the words within the grammatical way language works and laboring to understand the history or context of where this passage sits and to whom the original audience was. And in this, you may come across metaphors. This is normal to language and is clear when being used. When Jesus said, I am the door, we don't conclude that Jesus made is made of wood and swings on a hinge. The imagery is in his metaphors that Jesus is the entrance or the gateway into eternal life. And it's good to even when looking at metaphors to begin thinking through, well, what is a door and what is the purpose of a door? What was Jesus trying to communicate? What was he communicating by suggesting his resemblance to a door. And again, different categories of writing don't threaten this. We know that historical books are written in a different style or context than poetic literature and prophetic literature or epistles. And so just because God told Israel to do something at some point in time doesn't mean we all now have to do that same thing. No, we're disciplined. We're careful. We're intentional. And we hold fast to the normal use of words and language. The best way to understand God's meaning and have it benefit our lives is not to immediately rush to spiritualize things in some emphatic way that gets us all pumped up or hyped. No, it's to humbly submit to what God has clearly revealed and to restrain ourselves to what God has clearly revealed in the text and then let the Spirit of God do his work in us with God's word. Josh, what do we do with Advent? Like God is, um, like what do we do with that where you know, you've got God is a door, or you know, Jesus is a door, mm-hmm. like God is love? Like in, um, in, our, in our interpretation or understanding... Like, how, how does that bear on our lives, or how do we understand what that means? How, how, I guess I'm asking, how would we, how would we under, understand that? I mean, we, we know for sure that we, we've got a metaphor in Jesus as the door, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like you said, we know he's not wood on a hinge. Yeah. Um, what do we do with God is love? Do we take that metaphor? And how do we do, I mean, what do we do with that? Yeah. So, um, that's a great question. With every passage, what we want to do is we want to understand what does God mean by what he's writing right now. And so to take God as love, um, are you referring to 1 John? Is that so, so you, would, you would want to back out what is, what is John trying to communicate? What is he communicating to his original readers? And what did God want his readers to understand about him? Um, in that statement... John's point is not summing up the exclusivity of what God is in that he is love, but that a predominant attribute that shines forth in God is his love, right? Love does not define God, but God defines love. And he's talking about how believers can better understand if they are in the Lord and looking at their love for God and love for one another as an indicator of the sincerity of their faith for God. And so as you consider the standard of your love for God and your love for one another, you need to understand that love is encompassed in who God is, that he is the dictator of what love is. So as you seek to discern your understanding of where you're at before the Lord in your expression of this 
of this attribute of this love for others, you need to understand that God is the one who dictates that. So as you are self-controlled, you could go, well, God is love and love is God. And all of a sudden that becomes the predominant idea of only what God is exclusively. And you kind of run with that and you get yourself into trouble because you didn't do the hard work of backing out and understanding what is actually taking place there. So um, that's a great example of just not wanting to take a single phrase and all of a sudden impose that on the entirety of who God is, but no understanding through that work how, how it fits. Right. Can I ask yeah. another question? Of course. Um, so obviously, like you're saying, we reject the over-spiritualization, um, specifically like in like uh, stories in the Old Testament, you know, throwing our stone of faith at the giants in our life and whatever. Uh, but then at the same time, Jesus... Uh, you know, taught the two disciples on the road to Emmaus about everything in the scriptures concerning him, and there are types of Christ, right? Like we recognize in Abraham and Isaac, there's a type there. Yeah. So how do how do we properly, you know, because that's my background mm-hmm. is understand the Old Testament. Like I'm I'm destroying the walls before me, but then I read Nehemiah, so I'm also building up walls and like you know just over spiritualizing. So how do I properly interpret the Old Testament? to where I can recognize types yeah. and I can find things that God has intended yep. to show, but not, you get what I'm saying? It's a great question, Jackson. Yeah. That, that's that. Did you guys understand his question? Yeah. So when we're, when we're reading through the entirety of our old Testament and we're understanding how, how do we come to those kinds of conclusions? I, I would say this as a starting point. This is, this is a, a significant part of why we encourage men to read their whole Bible each year, because New Testament writers inspired by the spirit had insight, divine insight to be able to understand those types of relationships and draw those out for us in really sweet ways. And so if you're working through types and how things in the Old Testament might have pointed forward, your New Testament is going to be a huge aid in giving you solid footing to understand those types of things. And you should lean and stand on those things first. Beyond that, you want to be really careful um, to to make further lines than what Scripture has already made. And we're going to talk about some things here in in a moment about uh, interpretation, implication, application. There might be applications that you make that you are not bound to morally from Old Testament stories like facing the giants in your life um, that wasn't maybe God's primary intention, wasn't God's intention in that story, but you have opportunity for applications to be courageous that that the Lord impresses on your heart, that you're encouraged by, that you want to honor God in, and you want to be careful to not hold those things as authoritatively binding for every individual, although the Lord may use those things to encourage you. But there's still implications from that text where it implicates you and your thinking about the Lord needs to change and be sharpened and grown and strengthened. So um, what I would say is is patience, self-control, know the entirety of your Bible over time to understand what God has said about those different things and types and what they're pointing to. Take great liberty with wholeheartedly embracing and holding firmly what God has clearly revealed in regarding those regarding those things. And be careful to not rush too quickly to those types of things where it's not put forth in Scripture. 
Good questions. Great questions, guys. Um, and I forgot where we were. Actively equip yourself. Have we done that one? Okay. All right. We're gonna jump. We're gonna jump into that. Letter B. Actively equip yourself to understand God's word. And this is actually doing this type of thing that we're going to talk about right here briefly is going to help with both of these types of questions, right? This, this practice, this discipline is not something that's acquired overnight. Okay. Just like you're not, you're not made in complete holiness practically in one moment in being a believer, this skill of, of the hermeneutic of, of understanding God's word is something you need to be self-controlled in your contentment to let it be a process to grow in. And yet your contentment in letting it be a process to grow in isn't a contentment to be passive. It should make you all the more active to grow and then be patient as you're in that process. So actively equip yourself to understand God's word. Recognize this is a process. You can't equip yourself all at once. This takes time. It takes work to grow in understanding of language, work to understand the context of a passage and various books. So read your Bible and reread passages over and over again. Listen, if the entirety of your heart shepherding is is listening to the Bible in your car or just doing things, interjecting God's word at random, if that's the entirety of your Bible reading, you're going you're gonna to fall short. Those things are great, and you should include those types of things, but don't shortchange yourself from intentional study that is required to properly handle and understand God's word. If you have no idea when Ezekiel was written or to whom he was speaking or whom it was concerning, you'll have a lot of difficulty, but simply knowing and doing the work to understand that it was written around 570-592 BC to Jews captive in Babylon concerning the condemnation upon Judah's faithless leaders and godless foes and the consolation regarding Israel's future, you'll find a world of difference as you come before God and his word. You'll have a much better understanding of what's going on. And so equip yourself to understand God's word. And listen, right now I'm preaching to the choir on this because you're here. That's exactly what you're doing right now, which is great. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Equip yourself to understand God's word. And then lastly, under the necessity of self-control in your Bible reading is is what we just spoke about briefly, and, and I don't want to spend too much more time on it, but understand the relationship between interpretation and application. And you could even write in and implications. And implication. There is an important relationship between the interpretation of a text and the application of the text and even the implication of the text on the reader's life. While there is a relationship, it's important to understand there is, there is a distinction to these things as well. Interpretation, implication, and application, they complement each other, but they, can't, they cannot replace one another. And interpretation and implication and application of a text are best built all of these things, your, your implications and your applications are going to be best built on an accurate interpretation of a text. You have to get the text right. That's what you should labor towards. Interpretation is this. Understanding the truth in the passage within the intention of the author. Most simply stated. Interpretation finds the meaning the author intended 
in his historical situation. So understanding the truth in the passage with the intention of the author. Implication is how the text then implicates you. How does your thinking need to conform to the reality of that text? Sometimes there, there might be a very specific command that implicates you. Sometimes it might be a, a general truth and there's implications for you and you are bound to those. The text is authoritative. It's implications that it brings on your thinking of how you must conform are bound to, they're tied to that interpretation. But then there's application. And this is the various ways that one may need to live or think in light of the meaning of the passage. And while there is one interpretation and there may be various implications, application is one step further. And that is how God might use that text in practical ways of your thinking or life in your specific situation. Thus, simply understanding rightly an interpretation should not satisfy us. We should labor to understand how that implicates us, how it intersects in our life. And then likewise, we must seek to then live that truth out in our immediate context. This, again, takes diligent work and prayerful consideration for us to know if if a wife reads philippians 2 3 okay do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves and concludes that the meaning of that text is that she must regard her husband as more important than herself she is conflated how she believes her life must change with what paul actually meant Paul writing the believers in Philippi is helping them understand in the midst of their persecution, Christ-like sacrificial consideration of each other over themselves is necessary. Yet if the passage means what the wife concluded, what does this passage mean for her husband? If the wife concludes that the meaning of this text is I need to love my husband better, if the wife takes that, or if the husband takes that same meaning, that the meaning of the text is that he needs to love the husband better? It's, it's been conflated. She's taken a personal application of how she wants to live out that text and imposed it as the meaning. That's not the meaning. And so we have to be disciplined. We have to be self-controlled and patient. What does this text mean? How does it implicate me? And then what are the practical ways that I want to apply this personally before the Lord as I seek to live worshipfully for him? We need to labor in self-control to conclude what the passage means or what the correct interpretation is of the passage. And then based on that, consider how our lives must be affected personally, individual, based off of that one meaning from the text. Sometimes this might direct specific actions. Sometimes it might just inform our thinking. And don't ever, don't ever minimize the ways that God might use a simple, precious conformity of your thinking in your life. Probably one of the most simple statements that I would have been able to recite three weeks ago was God is good. 
And as I was doing CPR on my dead son, the only thing that could come out of my mouth was yelling, I know God is good. Don't underestimate one truth from scripture and how God might be pleased to use that in your life. Number four, long to be purified by God. Long to be purified by God. How how do you honor the Lord in your Bible reading? Come with a humble heart that wants to be made pure by God. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We're going to look at verses 9 through 16 together here. Just we'll make our way briefly. It'll be a sermonette that we can look at together. Long to be purified by God. Psalm 119. This honors God when we come to God's word because we want to be holy as he is holy. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We want to glorify God in our lives. So we want his word to have its purifying effect on our lives. Look at verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. We're going to see seven directives for how we come to God's word that it would have its purifying effect on our lives. We'll just make our way through verse by verse. Verse number 10, look at that with me. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Letter A, long to be purified by God's word. How do we do this? Seek God with all your heart. That's letter A, seek. Seek God with all your heart. Look at verse 10 again. He says, with all my heart, I have sought you. You see, the word of God is not the end. The word of God is a means to an end. You seek God's word because you seek God. You want to know God. If we're to keep God's word, as verse 9 says, there must be a personal seeking of God himself. We must seek to love God, to worship him, to glorify him in our lives. And if you do what the Bible says, but you have no love for God, all you have done is transferred your sin into legalistic sin. You must desire God. You must seek him. You must plead with him to keep you near to his commandments and his word because you want to be near to God himself. And it must be done, look at verse 10, with all your heart. We should fully commit our innermost being to this, to God himself, to know him, not half-hearted, but with all of your heart coming to God in his word. And the psalmist knows something about himself after he pledges to seek the Lord with all his heart. He understands there is a wandering within himself. And so he says, do not let me wander from your commandments. This is a necessary prayer for each of us. Regardless of how committed we may be, we need God's divine assistment to bind our wandering hearts to him as we sing. There is still capacity to wander from God's commandments, and we too must pray, do not let me wander. Letter B, treasure God's instruction in your heart. We see this in verse 11. Treasure. He says, your word I have treasured in my heart. Hold it in the depths of your heart. A deep valuation of the word causes the heart to keep the word. 
You must treasure the word so that, that none of its riches might slip through your fingers. Treasure the word so that you do not treat God's word carelessly, that you might steward it well, that you wouldn't forget it. That is how God's word must be on our hearts as a, as a treasure carefully watched over and guarded. And he says, treasure it because he doesn't want to sin against God. And that's where we see the word of God helping us keep our ways pure. Do you treasure God's word like this? The psalmist understood that if there is not a treasuring of God's word in his life, there is a almost certainty that he will sin against God. But if he treasures God's word, there is much greater hope of him keeping it. Letter C, long for instruction from God. Long for instruction from God. Your blank is long. Verse 12 begins by praising the Lord, saying, Blessed are you, O Lord. The psalmist breaks out into praise, and it seems he's immediately applying the previous point of treasuring God's word and is now praising God for his word. And in so doing, he humbles himself. He submits himself. And look at the second line of verse 12. Teach me your statutes long for instruction from god the commandments of the lord are not burdensome we should long for god's instruction in our lives have you ever felt like you're reading scripture and you're just like well i can't do that i can't enjoy this i can't enjoy that oh repent of that kind of thinking long for god's instruction it is good long for it the, the psalmist does not view himself as over the word of God, bringing judgment upon the word of God. Rather, he is submitting himself under the word of God. He knows the value of God's word. He treasures God's word. And now he is eager to be taught by God's word. And he recognizes that God's word sits far above him and he must humble himself under it. This psalmist writes 176 verses on the word of God and he continually asks God that he would teach him God's word. It, it doesn't matter how much you think you know about God's word. You submit yourself to God and you plead with him more. Teach me more. D, proclaim God's instruction to others. Proclaim God's instruction to others. Look at verse 13. With my lips I have told all the ordinances of your mouth. God's word is best kept when it is kept by someone who is, is proclaiming it. Share it. You want to talk about an opportunity for discipline to tell your families, tell your friends about what God is showing you, what, what you're seeing in God's word. Proclaim it. Share it. This isn't a divine call for every person to be a formal Bible teacher. But you should be so saturated and enthralled with God's word that it's the topic of conversation that comes out. That is a means of God's grace for you. Tell others God's truth. And the more you tell others, the more you'll keep God's word because, listen, it'll be etched into your own conscience. E, rejoice in God's instruction. Rejoice is your blank. 
there on letter E, rejoice in God's instruction. Look at verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. If we're to keep our way pure, we are to rejoice in the word of God. We must remember intentionally the reality of what God's word is. God's word is immeasurable riches, whether you feel it or proclaim it or think it. We need to align ourselves with the reality of what God's word is, and we need to rejoice in God's instruction if we're to keep our way pure. This book, God's word, reveals to us the living God. It reveals to us the truth about God. It holds the key to eternal salvation, to relationship, to fellowship with him. It lays out in detail man's past and what the future holds. Nothing is like this book. We are to rejoice in it. We are to find pleasure in it. And again, if you don't find joy in God's word in a moment, don't wait for that emotion to come to declare what is right and true. What will help you find joy in God's word? God's word. Letter F, meditate on God's instruction. Meditate. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. To keep the word of God, we must meditate on it. Meditate it. What is it to meditate on God's word? It's to recall the word to your memory, to think intentionally on it, to roll it over and over in your mind. It should dominate your life. It should dominate your thoughts. It's to be thought about what it means, how it should impact your life, what it reveals about God. This is what we should do throughout the day. There must be a deep considering of God's word and what God expects. This word for meditating was the word used in the ancient world to represent a cow that would be chewing grass. And the cow would chew it until it became cud, and the cud would sit in the cow's mouth where the cow could chew it over and over and over, trying to pull out every drop of juice out of the grass, savoring it throughout the day. While that is kind of gross, (laughs) that's what God's word should be for us. That's how we're to interact with God's word. Meditate. That's a lost discipline. Okay, sometimes we have reading plans and we read our Bible. We wake up half asleep. We do it because we know we should, and that's better than not doing it. And then we go about our days, and if you're asked at the end of the day, what did you read this morning? We can't recall it. We should work. Work. Be disciplined to meditate on God's word. Letter G. And we'll wrap up this section with this. Joyfully retain. Joyfully retain is the blank. God's instruction. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Joyfully retain God's instruction. God's word cannot come and go in your life. It must be written upon the tablet of our hearts. We must absorb its truth, absorb its riches, This might be memorization and our retention of it, meditation, contemplation. The psalmist declares, I will not forget your word. God's word has found a a home in the psalmist's heart, a permanent residence in the psalmist's heart. 
We must long for God's purifying effect of his word to be present in our lives. Next, how do we honor the Lord in our Bible reading? Number five, humbly entrust yourself to God's wisdom. That's number five. Humbly entrust yourself to God's wisdom. We must joyfully submit ourselves to God's wisdom. God gets to decide what is right. God gets to decide what is good and what is bad. And so we entrust ourselves to him by submitting ourselves to God's word. Your emotions are not to rule over your Bible reading. Rather, your Bible reading is to guide your emotions. And so statements like, I just couldn't believe God would want this for me. Or I couldn't believe in a God who would do fill in the blank. Those kinds of statements cannot be on our lips. They dare not be on our hearts or our minds. We humbly entrust ourselves to God's wisdom. To God's wisdom. As Asher said at Caleb's service, it was God's wisdom that led to sending his son to die. So that we might have salvation in him. In light of that, why why would we ever, how could we ever question him? We just can't. The arrogance. The pride. No, we humble ourselves. And listen, that's the one to whom God actually looks. The one who is humble, contrite of spirit, and trembles at God's word. Not the one who demands answers at every turn from God as they read God's word. No, we humble ourselves before him. We are contrite and we tremble before a holy God as we draw near to him. God is God. We are not. We humbly entrust ourselves to God's wisdom. Number six, trustingly resign yourself to the sufficiency of God's word. Trustingly resign yourself to the sufficiency, that's your blank, of God's word. A couple passages you can just write down and visit them. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture God breathes and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be adequately equipped, ready for every good deed. Second Peter 1 3, he's granted us, his divine power is granted to us to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's Second Timothy three sixteen and Second Peter one three. We can have confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture to equip us and give us what we need to honor God to please him. We don't need to go pursue worldly strategies for repenting of sin or attaining peace or finding joy or navigating trials. We can turn to God's word with confidence and trustingly resign ourselves to the sufficiency of God's word. I've had the the most intense and deepest questions that I've ever had in my life just trying to figure out what happened. How did I miss it? What was he doing? And not one answer to those questions will bring lasting peace or contentment. I want answers to those questions of what happened two weeks ago to Caleb. But the answer to those give me nothing eternal. 
Yet I have the words of eternal life. I have the words from God. This truth gives peace. This truth contents the soul. And so, men, trustingly resign yourself to the sufficiency of God's word. He is so good and so kind in giving us what we need. And then lastly, number seven, obediently embrace God's care for you through the church. The church. God's design for his people is to be in a church, to be connected with other believers, to be under elder pastoral leadership, to be connected and linked with other believers. Do not forsake assembling together that there would be pastors and elders who guard the flock, who watch over doctrine, who equip the saints for the work of ministry. And listen, there is safety in this. And again, I'm preaching to the choir because you're here. But embrace it, obediently embrace God's care for you through the church as you seek to honor God in your Bible reading. There's safety in this for you. If you find yourself embracing theology that no one around you believes, you probably need to slow down. Make sure that you're listening to others as well as you are better than you're listening to yourself. There is protection for us collectively in our understanding of God being closely connected to the body of Christ. Do not neglect, do not forsake, do not minimize the grace of God to you in his local church as you seek to honor the Lord in understanding his word. Even the questions asked this morning are wonderful things to ponder together and consider and help put restraints on one another so that we don't venture outside of what God has revealed and to help solidify the ground that we stand on as we seek to under God, understand God from his word. Cannot, cannot overstate the importance of the word of God in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and the privilege that it is to be together as men under your grace. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your spirit. You are so kind to us. You are so good to us. And we pray that you would help us be men who worship you, who honor you as we bring our hearts before you in your word. Help us, Lord. Aid us, equip us, fortify us, sanctify us with your word, that we would be pleasing to you in every regard. We ask in Christ's name, amen.